The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Oh my god. That's the future. The machine predicts a war. We go to war to avert it. It predicts a plague. We herd all the sick together. Create a plague. Whatever future this predicts, we make happen. We give over control of our lives completely. I did this. Seeing the future will destroy us. If you show someone their future, they have no future. Welcome, everyone. It's Thursday, February 4th, 2016. I'm Robert Vaughn. And I'm Bob Metz. And this is Just Right on WBCQ 5.110 MHz. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Yes, we've got it all for you today. Taxes, moral relativism, global warming, free speech, and yes, the law of causality versus progressive thinking, which in that list pertains to some of the subjects you're going to be talking about, Robert. Ah, the theory of relativity when it applies to morality. Isn't that interesting? It sounds like it's going to be an interesting show, but before we get going, don't forget... You can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ 5.110 megahertz, and visit us at www.justrightmedia.org. Perhaps one last kick at the can on the issue of causality, Robert, Uh, the law of causality and the inevitability of choice. I know you weren't in, on the show last week, but for me, uh, last week's show was a pretty tough one to do, mostly because of the learning curve I had to sit myself on, you know, learn, discussing all that Aristotelian stuff. And you know how we all hate to teach an old dog new tricks, and that, that, that includes me. But I found the Aristotelian modes of causation, formal, material, efficient, and final, as presented by Dr. Daniel Robinson, to be most useful in helping assess our state of world affairs today. And uh, when integrated into some of the observations we've made, you know, with Leonard Peikoff and John McMurray, it painted an unexpectedly consistent and rational way of looking at the fundamental issues of cause and consequence when I put it all together. Did you get that impression? I found the whole show fascinating, Bob. I learned a lot, and I think it's one of the best shows you've ever done. Well, it was a learning experience for me, too. And I have to tell you, Robert, when I got up Thursday morning and saw what picture you posted on the show or you know, the, to accompany our show online, I did not at first know who that strange person was. No, it's because uh, um, John McMurray has always been depicted in his old age with a big white beard. Well, that was an amazing picture of him. I guess it was taken in 1933. Mm-hmm. And what a handsome-looking gentleman, I have to say. And it struck me, how come I don't know what the guy looks like? I have six of his books. I I pull them out, and his picture's not in a single one of them. So that explains that. And uh, But very fascinating picture and uh, interesting man, that's for sure. Yeah, for a guy who wrote the book on the self, it's it's rather ironic, I guess, that we don't even know what his self looks like. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Well, let's move on and thank you once again to those of you who sent us their feedback about last week's show and the week before. And uh, that includes Trevor, Rob, Murray, and Liam. And I think Liam is someone you're going to be addressing later on in the show today. Liam wrote us. I'm going to take up his letter at the uh, last Mm -hmm. quarter. 
But the the one that caught my attention here was uh, this one from Rob. I, of course, I read his letter on the air last week, and he writes, Hi, Bob. Thanks for sharing my opinion. I think you were saying that I may have been presumptuous in narrowing down the current state of progressive thinking and governance to a couple of quote-unquote causes. I do understand that many factors are required for an evolution or a revolution in this case, however. I believe the JFK assassination jump-started this particular movement because Oswald was a leftist extremist, a Democrat party tried to keep that quiet by forming the narrative that America was at fault because America itself had become toxic when the reality was the act was entirely committed by one man. Toss in the war, the demise of LBJ, the corruption of Nixon and the malaise of Carter, and it was a perfect recipe for average citizens to look at the country itself in a lost cause, a situation ripe for a leader to quote-unquote provide for the great unwashed, end quote. Good letter from Rob. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had to write him back because I wanted to clear something up, and I think it might have affected other people listening to the show, too. And I want to make it clear, you know, and I've already written him, and he's written back since. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, I said, by no means was it my intention to suggest that his analysis was presumptuous. In fact, quite the opposite. Just as Dr. Robinson illustrated with his example of the, quote, cause of a particular piece of sculpture. Wasn't that fascinating? Um Many entirely correct answers can be given to that question, quote-unquote. That's what he said. And, for example, without contradicting a single of Rob's observations, one could also argue that the cause of progressive thinking and governance could be boiled down to the growth of pragmatism as the American ideal of philosophy, which is exactly, by the way, what my own Universal World Reference Encyclopedia does indeed suggest. And similarly, there are those who quite correctly say that World War I was, quote-unquote, caused by the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand. Yet consider this opening paragraph on that very issue, also taken from my Universal World Reference Encyclopedia, and I quote here, Causes of the War. No two persons or government agree on the causes of the war, but the immediate incentive was the assassination of the Austrian heir apparent, Archduke Ferdinand and his wife, at Sarajevo, capital of Bosnia, June 28, 1914. This event was simply the culmination of a long series of complex events stretching far back into European history. Chief among these were, one, clashing interests arising from the growth of nationalism, Two, the belief in the pursuit of power politics, the development of military alliances and a race for armaments, and three, economic rivalry, which sharpened his hostility. The basic idea behind these is that war was a legitimate instrument of national policy. This was the governing ideal and direction taken by all policy, end quote. That that is more telling that last sentence than all the rest of the events, because that was their ideal. And, you know, given the, quote, long series of complex events stretching far back into European history, one can easily see how there is, in fact, as John McMurray pointed out, an infinite regress of events and causes, each demanding a further cause. You know, it presents itself at every turn. And I thought, you know, note the use of the words events and cause in this historical account. Is a given event itself a cause, or is a given event the realization of previous causes. As Aristotle maintained, the final cause has to be the first in conception, which means you've got to start with something to, be, to have any discussion of what is the cause of it. You know, you have to start at the end. So 
essentially this means that it depends upon what you choose as your starting point or end point of discussion or study. And what makes a particular observation or cause relevant or presumptuous, I think, only has to do with the nature and significance of, of, of your chosen focus, like being off topic <laughs> or trying to change the subject. In the Logan's Run sci-fi story we aired last week, notice that the time traveler believed he could change history once given, quote, the reason that the Holocaust started, or in other words, the cause of it, <laughs> which was somehow buried in a record of facts and events on a computer. Of course, just as World War I was not caused by the assassination of Ferdinand, although this was a true and factual event in the process, so too the fictional holocaust of Logan's run could not in any way have been caused by a single event, even despite the spoiler I mentioned last week. So it's beginning to dawn on me that the so-called law of causality is neither static nor even a simple one, two, or three, or even four-dimensional time phenomenon. It's a never-ending continuum, which can only be understood by human beings on human anthropomorphic terms. That's why I think they referred to that in, in their studies last time. Hence, the ultimate concepts of cause and event, you know, final cause, are really just human snapshots that we take of that continuum every now and then. Snapshots only capable of viewing a single cause or event in any given single point in time, therefore first in conception. And that's, all we're, that's why they say it's so, um, it's human-based. You know, Peikoff said it, John McMurray said it, Dr. Robinson said it, Aristotle said it. They all arrived at that same conclusion. And I said, and I concluded, I said, having concluded that, I may very well have been somewhat presumptuous myself. <laughs> and uh, Rob very kindly wrote back just a few days ago to respond, uh, Not at all, Bob. I liked that you gave relief to listeners that may be overwhelmed in trying to assimilate and process the complex information you provide by admitting that you too cannot walk away and retain every detail that weaves a cohesive thought or theory. The quest for knowledge is truly a rewarding, albeit frustrating journey, and I thank you and Robert for being a part of mine. And thank you, Rob. That was a nice thing yes, to say. Yes, thank you, Rob. Now, that's what I call progressive thinking. And speaking of progressive thinking, according to a post-media network report <clears throat> uh, titled Alberta More Progressive Than You Think that ran in the London Free Press on January 16th, progressives in Alberta are now the quiet majority, quote-unquote. This might re have something to do with your topic, but maybe not, Robert. Um, citing, quote, sweeping demographic changes due to interprovincial and international migration, the report by Duncan Kinney asserts, quote, conservatives in Alberta are loud, well-connected, and well-funded, but they are not the majority. Progressives are. The myth of Alberta as this great conservative heartland needs to be put to bed. Something the writer concludes, by the way, is a change for the better in Alberta, which I think says more about the writer <laughs> than it does about Alberta. So I don't know if this trend has anything to do with the spotlight um, that we'll be putting on the conservative, or you'll be putting on the conservatives later, Robert. But it certainly will help explain the issue that has arisen out in Alberta that I'll be putting on the spotlight on the spotlight after we return from our brief break for yet another smile, thanks to the gang at Red Dwarf, about glimpsing into the so-called future. Yo, Rimmer, look, I've been thinking. What? You know about going into stasis and everything. How did I do what? <laughs> what do you mean, how did I do what? Listen, don't be a gimboid. I'm not being a gimboid. <laughs> I've just been in the library thinking, and I've decided... Shut up! 
As I was saying before I was so rudely interrupted, I've decided when you go into stasis, I want to stay behind. I want to be left on. What? On, on your own for the rest of your life? What things? Eh? <laughs> I said what? What's going on? You're space crazy. I'm space crazy. You're the one who's space crazy. Well, it probably is deja vu. It sounds like it. <laughs> ah, Rimmer! I've just seen you walk out of that door. What? How did you do that? How did I do what? You just a second walked out of that door. Listen, don't be a gimboy. I swear on my grandmother's life as you walked out of that door. You came in this one. I've just been in the library thinking, and I've decided... Really, I'm telling you? Shut up. As I was saying before I was so rudely interrupted, I've decided when you go into stasis, I want to stay behind. I want to be left on. Rima, you just come in and said exactly these things. What things? You said that. I said what? And that. You said that. You are space crazy. And then you said, well, it probably is deja vu. Well, it probably is deja vu, it sounds like... <laughs> Excuse me. Lucas? Mr. President? What are you doing there? I'm trying to avoid more casualties, sir. Mr. President, what you haven't been told is that this is a disaster scenario. Sir, <clears throat> as we all know, man-made chemicals like chlorofluorocarbons have infiltrated the upper atmosphere and weakened the ozone. Put holes into it. The energy that this bombardment of CMEs is carrying can and will Penetrate the ozone at these weak points. But that is just the beginning. Our atmosphere has always been a mix of nitrogen, oxygen, and 2% of the gases. That 2% has gone to 5% in the last 10 years. And most of that is methane. Highly volatile, highly flammable methane. Sir, when those CMEs break through the ozone, they will ignite pockets of methane and literally set the sky on fire. That fire will consume the world's oxygen supply within a few hours. All living things will literally suffocate to death. <clears throat> Mr. President, with all due respect, Dr. Foster's elaborate claims are entirely based on speculation. Well, uh, we all agree that these things are coming our way, right? Yes, we do. How dare you use this agency and its good name for your Armageddon propaganda? Bradley, his theory is valid. I want you out of this building. This is a story that takes us out west to Alberta, namely Calgary and Edmonton, where apparently, Robert, the messages on billboards erected by a group called Friends of Science are being, um, you know, countered by another competing group, EcoJustice, who wants to use the Competition Bureau, to stifle the message of Friends of Science on their billboards, <laughs> really. And I want to read this editorial that, that was, um, actually it's published by the Post Media Network, but I got it out of the London Free Press on December 14th. And I have to read it in its entirety before I come back to criticize it, otherwise you won't get the gist of it. But, but there's a lot to say about this issue. And it certainly speaks to many of the issues we've just been talking about. And it was an editorial called Don't Let Free Speech Melt in Heated Debate. 
ran on December 14th, and I'm, quote now, There's one thing that those who believe in anthropogenic global warming and those who don't should agree upon. Freedom of speech for those on the opposite side of the fence. While 97% of scientists who publish peer-reviewed material on climate change agree that global warming is caused by humans, some groups do not. But that doesn't mean they should be prevented from putting up billboards to make their views public. When free speech conflicts arise, human rights commissions are usually the tribunal of choice for the aggrieved. In the case of the Canadian organization, Ecojustice, bizarrely enough, the Competition Bureau's aid is being enlisted. Ecojustice wants the Competition Bureau to look into what it says is misleading information being publicized by the global warming denier group, (laughs) Friends of Science. The group has put up billboards in Calgary and Edmonton saying the sun, not human beings or CO2, is the cause of global warming. This is a free speech issue, pure and simple, not one of who is right about the causes of climate change and who is wrong. The Competition Bureau has been called in because Ecojustice argues the billboards violate the Competition Act by promoting a product or business interest through false representations. That's a clever way to try and skirt the free speech issue, but it doesn't change the fact Friends of Science is as entitled as anyone else to put up billboards or disseminate its beliefs. One of the complainants is University of Alberta biology professor and water expert David Schindler, who says Friends of Science uses, quote, short snippets of data that support their point of view and talk about there not being anything settled on climate, end quote. So what? If this kind of criterion for squelching someone's right to free speech were applied across the spectrum, scores of organizations with a staggering variety of focuses and interests would be forced to shut up. Schindler says that recent papers show 97% of people who publish on climate change agree on what causes climate change. Then they should get on with finding ways to do something about it and quit wasting precious time trying to shut down a minority of folks who don't agree. And that was from the Post Media Network, end quote. Good for them. (laughs) Well, yes and no. Uh, Yes, it's stupid. Good, good to criticize them, but that in there is the problem. And so let me begin by disagreeing with the opening assertion they make. Quote, There is one thing that those who believe in anthropogenic global warming and those who don't should agree upon, freedom of speech for those on the opposite side of the fence. Robert, that is pure BS. <laughs> Do there, tell. There has never been, uh, uh, it's never been true of leftist or movements or causes. Oh, of course. No, the left right. never believed well, in free speech. Well, there you go which includes everything from, you can go back to Germany's Nazi rule during the 1930s to current-day campus radio stations that offer no balance from the so-called right, pardon the the reference. The left does not debate. The left censures, ridicules, ignores, evades, avoids, obstructs, attacks messengers instead of the message, and engages in just about any physical threat or impediment to open debate on any issue that exposes their agenda or their disconnect from reality and reason. And I'm getting sick of saying this. Because there's a very good reason why one side in the debate does not agree with freedom of speech with its opponents. Because it's wrong. It demonstrates this by its own inability or unwillingness to debate clearly objective issues. Now consider this in light of what we learned about Aristotle. These guys want to win. They don't want to search for the truth. Uh-huh. Right? Well said. You see? That's, that's where these lessons will come in handy. If all the crap in the editorial is to be believed at all, it would mean that the 97% majority is terrified of this 3% minority opinion. Why would such a supposedly large majority be concerned with so small a minority opinion? 
Freedom of speech is not the issue. Censorship and the thugs who resort to the use of force to present public discussion are the issues. Why don't we talk about them all the time? These are the people. These are they're everybody's enemy. They're fascists. They, all of them have. They're evil. They have horrible causes. But well, the very fact that we have a competition bureau is a talk for Thank another you. day. Thank you. I'm getting to that. Well, <laughs> oh, is it talk for today? Okay, well, good. <laughs> just briefly, I might get a chance to mention it. But eco, you know. So eco-justice, they're <laughs> coming to it now. There's an oxymoronic term, if yes. ever there was one, much like social justice. It's it mean, a non-term. Yeah, it means injustice. Justice is a term that applies to human beings between human beings only. Justice for the environment is meaningless, except in human terms. The environment requires no justice. Then there's what you said, the Competition Bureau, Robert, which by its very existence is anti-competitive. Only governments, this is ironic, are capable of creating monopolies and thereby ending competition, right? Which means a free market, free minds. Force and fraud are what, are, are what need to be eliminated from the economic marketplace, not instituted in the name of their opposite. Now, Friends of Science at least says something more objective in its name. It's not a global warming denier group, as the editorial self-contradicts itself. Um, Especially given that what Friends of Science is saying is that global warming is caused by the sun. How can they be denying global warming? It's, it's absurd on its face. I said that myself many years ago. Many of the guests who've appeared on our own show have said the same thing. Now, how in any outrageous stretch of any idiot's imagination does that statement turn into a warming denier? The whole level of irrational political poison disgusts me to no end, Robert. No one's denying anything. They are merely asserting a different conclusion based on evidence obtained independently of any, quote, theories that require denial. That, again, is, comes back to some of these, these uh, things that Aristotle said. It's an epistemological trick. If someone were to say that the kettle on the stove was cold, they would, by default, be denying that the kettle was hot. <laughs> right? Denier. Exactly. And that's, a, that's as simple as this trick is. Kettle denier. The, the feminists do it. All the people on the left do it. You only have to know the political history of the environmental movement to be certain that the climate change or cooling or warming or threat or whatever it is is a political manifestation of the extreme uh, totalitarian left. Do you know where that word, why they use the word denier? Because it's first, I first, when I heard it, it was Holocaust denier. Mm, that's right. It was from the loony right wing, mm -hmm. right? You know, the irrational. Right. You're a denier of obvious facts when it came to the Holocaust. And they take that word and they've attached it now to global warming. Or to anything that doesn't, that doesn't hold up to its yeah. own, own evidence. That's the problem. You know, that, uh, that climate changes is a constant reality. That man is responsible for the current change in climate, which this year seems to be all about warming again after a brief period of retreating simply to climate change. <laughs> uh, it's negligible. Though mankind can and has changed weather patterns, mo mostly by agricultural practices or lack thereof. What's truly destructive to the environment from a humanistic point of view is poverty. Wealth and the only social arrangement that permits wealth to accumulate, capitalism, are the only true long-term ideal solutions to any problem dealing with issues of environment and pollution. The focus on CO2 is completely misdirected, though classified as a greenhouse gas. It does not behave in the manner of a gre greenhouse effect. We've discussed that with scientists on our show, including Christopher Essex, Lord Christopher Monckton, um, a number of people <laughs> who I might get a chance to mention later. But then now we get to the issue of censorship. And it occurs to me that all censorship, when it comes down to it, is censorship of a truth 
or a fact. It's not necessary to censor lies and gossip, you know, beyond libel and slander considerations, on issues that concern the public interest. Do you remember the Carla Homolka case when we weren't supposed to hear about what actually happened in the court case? And Gordon Dom, with whom we got involved, because he was being censored for bringing in American newspapers, reporting on the facts, bringing them back into Canada. And what was interesting was only people who published accurate information on the trial, because we Canadians weren't supposed to know about it, were being pursued by authorities when they published on bulletin boards. So if you put crap online and nobody bothered you, you knew it was crap. Mm -hmm. If they came after you, that's how you knew, oh, that's the truth. And it's the same with Holocaust deniers, as you said. Do you realize Ernst Sundel was actually put into solitary confinement when he was held in Canada, waiting to be deported to Germany, where he served a five-year sentence for supposedly being a Holocaust denier and Jew hater, which, by the way, I don't think you ever could say he was those particular... I've heard him speak on Jim Chapman's show, and he did not deny that these events happened. He just gave them different labels, right? So it was all about the words he was using. I didn't follow Zundel at all. Well, he, he, was, he was not the nut bar a lot of people think he was, and that's what freaked me out. I asked Jim Chapman about what he thought about the guy being held in uh, captivity. He really had no, no anything to say about it. But here he is in Germany five years while right outside his jail cell, all the anti-Semitism of both the Germans and influx of Islamists is going on unabated, all without any official recognition. Now, I've got a relative who works at a German newspaper, And he told my mother just the other day, just talking to her the other day, that no one is allowed in Germany to speak publicly about the Islamist situation or the issue of the growing anti-Semitism in the country or the fact that Germany's entire infrastructure and social system is on some kind of breaking point. They've got a lot of problems that we don't hear about. And he says what he thinks is that the root of it is this collective German guilt over the Holocaust, which basically they still don't understand uh, their, their quote, quote-unquote, cause of. <laughs> and I think it's been a great impediment to facing their issues from a reality and reason point of view. So, now, here's one right out of our sci-fi time travel and future stories. This one came out of uh, just an article I found now, January 27th, Politics, Climate, Pose Grave Risks, Say Scientists. And out of Stanford, uh, California, rising tensions between Russia and the U.S., North Korea's recent nuclear test and a lack of aggressive steps to address climate change are putting the world under grave threat, scientists, behind a doomsday clock that measures the likelihood of global catalysm, uh, catalysm, said Tuesday. The bulletin of the atomic scientists announced that the minute hand of the metaphorical clock remains at three minutes to midnight, which reflects how vulnerable the world is to catastrophe from nuclear weapons, climate change, and new technologies, with midnight, of course, symbolizing the apocalypse. Unless we change the way we think, humanity remains in serious danger, said Lawrence Krauss, chair of the bulletin, Bulletin's board of sponsors. He really means uh, change what we think, or rather what he'd like everyone else to believe. Krauss said Iran's nuclear agreement and Paris Climate Accord were good news, but the good news is offset by nuclear threats, including tension between nuclear-armed India and Pakistan and uncertainty that the Paris Accord will lead to concrete action. The scientists cited climate change, modernization of nuclear weapons, and extraordinary and undeniable threats as extraordinary and undeniable threats to the continued existence of humanity, end quote. This is a page right out of our opener today, Robert. And as well a reflection of the silly attempt by the time-traveling scientists on Logan's run that we featured last week on how utterly misguided otherwise supposedly intelligent people can actually be. Change the way we think 
you know, start with Aristotle and get off that platonic plateau. The way we think politically is in terms of socialism, communism, and all sorts of various totalitarian collectivist concepts and notions that are the very man-made, not natural or divine, things that make the world a dangerous place. All of them are anti-capitalist, anti-freedom, including the BS ideas promoted by the so-called scientists mentioned in this article, and groups like eco-justice. They're no less an existential threat than are the Islamists, the Nazis were, and other end-of-the-world theories that you know, only prove these people uh, never seemed to once have opened up a history book or a philosophy book. So all of these eco-nuts and anti-capitalists and scientists need to listen into our last few shows if they can keep <laughs> from getting their faces turning beet red, uh, you know, perhaps heed a few of the most basic of the lessons about cause and effect known so long ago as the time of Aristotle. I recall the words of the late professor of history at Western University, Ken Hilborn, a good friend of ours who wrote so many years ago, quote, this is an age of irrationality, end quote. And therein lies the source of the true cause of any dilemmas that may befall us. That's it for me, Robert. Well, Bob, coming up here at the bottom of the hour, we have a couple of clips. Now, want to end off your section. But after that, I don't know if you've noticed, but it seems that more often than not, the political opinions of objectivists and conservatives intersect more than they do with the political opinions of the left and the progressives and, you know, the liberals. On this program... We certainly feel more at home debating issues with conservatives than we do with liberals, perhaps because liberals don't debate. Uh, we may not share the same fundamental view of reality, the same concept of truth, the same ethics, nor the same politics, and yet there is an element we have in common. We both oppose moral relativism. Now, what we're going to hear coming out of the, uh, out of the bumper is the voice of British philosopher and conservative Roger Scruton, on the topic of moral relativism, and when we come back, I'll have more to say on the subject. Listen to this. In Africa, drought continues for the sixth consecutive year. Record rains in parts of the U.S., Pakistan, and Japan caused some of the worst flooding in centuries. New England and Northern Europe have recently experienced the mildest winters without anyone's recollection. It says right here in Time magazine. The weather's gone nuts, and we humans are to blame. Now we're going to pay for it. Scientists are telling us we're heading into a new ice age? What? It's from Time Magazine, Monday, June 24th, 1974. I've got to stop picking up 30-year-old magazines in my dentist's office. And that's not a joke. That's the real article from Time 1974. I'm Penn, and this is my partner, Taylor. And yeah, three decades ago, pretty much everybody thought we were heading into an ice age. Today, the same fossil fuel emissions are causing global warming. Hey, no worries. You may be a carbon sinner, but now you can buy yourself a clean, green conscience for cash. It's a new craze based on eco-guilt, and it's... Maybe in, uh, in just a few sentences, uh, what exactly is moral relativism, and, and maybe you can put it in sort of layman's terms, and what's been its unique contribution uh, to Western thought? 
I would say that um, in layman's terms, a moral relativist is somebody who believes that a moral judgment is the expression of the subjective opinion of a particular person and that it cannot be ev evaluated from any other position than his own. Mm -hmm. So everything, every judgment is relative to the interests and position of the person who makes it. So that in the end, there is no position that we, outside the individual from which he can be judged. Right. What, Roger, to your mind, is the problem with moral relativism? Well, <clears throat> there is an intellectual problem as to what it is. What, just what does a moral relativist believe? Um, you know, uh, he obviously believes that moral judgments do not have any kind of absolute force. But um, what follows from that? Are they relative to, to something? If so, to what are they relative? That's one problem. Um, and there's a huge discussion in the literature about this, very inconclusive discussion. But the real problem is what it means to ordinary people who don't, do, who don't have the philosophical training and the philosophical inclinations that some of us have who nevertheless hear this expression, moral relativism, they hear phrases like, it's all relative, um, or that there are no absolute values, or that um, any judgment that you make is your judgment from your point of view, there's no objective point of view, and so on. These are all garbled versions of, a of philosophical positions, but they are very influential on ordinary people, uh, and have given rise to the to the feeling that really in the end there is no there is no point outside the individual's own perspective from which he can be judged. He can only be judged from within his own perspective in terms of his own desires, ambitions, aims and so on. And um, which means that judgment becomes a kind of Im impertinence uh, and uh, uh, and as a result, of course, people cease to share any conception that they are uh, joined in a, in a common enterprise. That, of course, is a fascinating discussion. I think it's an hour-long discussion I found on YouTube by uh, Roger Scruton. And um, we'll have uh, more to hear from him uh, later on in the hour. But what we seem to share, and what I got, got from uh, Professor Scruton, was that we share with conservatives uh, is that we both believe that there's an external reality against which our actions must be measured. Now, for an objectivist myself, it is reality, the reality of man in a physical universe who must make decisions consistent with that reality. For the conservatives, the external measure is God. Now, for the person on the left, the so-called progressive, there is no external truth. This, I believe, is a fundamental difference between the conservative and the progressive, between the objectivist and the progressive. For the objectivist, the idea of self is a function of a living brain in a physical universe. There is no mind-brain dichotomy. One is a function of the other, and once the brain goes, the mind goes, as does one's ego and one's sense of self. There's no transcendence. The self is transitory in an, ex in an eternal, objective universe. Morality for the objectivist is not that of the nihilist. A person's life is an end 
in itself. And the purpose of that life is to achieve happiness here on earth. Now, objectivist morality is based on reason, and he acts using reason to govern his actions, to achieve his values, and thus his happiness. And that was a conclusion arrived at with all the philosophers I discussed last week. Yeah. Every one of them. And they all arrived at those conclusions independently. Imagine that. And it's just fascinating that we're here we are, you know, thousands of years after Aristotle, still talking about it. <laughs> well, that's because it's not us here. We're a new, we're a new generation since then. That's and, true. So, I mean, and we every, always have to relearn things. Constantly. We're in the state of tabula rasa to realization. That's what human beings are, I guess, constantly. Mm-hmm. Now, the conservative. Let's move on from the objectivist to the conservative. Uh, Roger Scruton, I think, is, calls himself a conservative, at least as, as how we characterize conservatives today. A conservative is a religionist. Now, while he, a conservative like the objectivist, believes that the self, the subjective, exists in an objective external world, he believes in an immutable soul, an intangible self that transcends the physical, which will one day survive without the physical brain. For him, the universe is transitory, while the soul is eternal. Somewhat different from the objectivist, I would say, the exact opposite. The conservative acts on earth not necessarily to achieve his own happiness, to fulfill a a selfish life, but to live according to what he believes is God's plan, God's purpose for him. His morality is usually one of altruism and sacrifice, and his morality is measured against the dictates of religious religious text. Now, the nihilist, the liberal, the left-winger, the progressive, the sinister among us, believe that nobody can tell them what they should have as values. To them, anything goes, and for whatever reason they choose. They don't have to explain themselves to anyone. Their actions are always justifiable to themselves, and that is all that matters. For the nihilist, the self has no context. The universe is the self, and the self, the universe. It will all come to pass, so live for today and damn the consequences. For the conservative, God will judge his behavior, and God's word shall be his guide. Thy will be done. For the objectivist, reality is the final judge, and reason shall be his guide. Nature to be commanded must be obeyed. Who are we to judge is the common refrain coming from the nihilist. Or, one man's opinion is just as valid as anyone else's. For the nihilist, his emotions are his guide. If it feels good, do it. Now, ironically, and we will hear Roger Scruton talk about this later, the nihilist, while he doesn't believe in an objective morality, will try his darndest to impose that morality on others. He will try to make objective or that's, external... That's an interesting observation. Yeah. yeah we, we actually talked about that, I think, yeah. I think this uh, a couple of shows ago with the, uh, with the round table. Yeah. The, obje- the, uh, the subjectivist, the nihilist, will try to make objective or external his own subjective internal sense of right and wrong. Scruton calls it a paradox. I call it hypocrisy. But I also believe that it's evidence that a human being must act as if there's an objective universe, even though he claims that there is not, as as the nihilist does. You can't. Reality is always knocking on your door. Now, for the nihilist, the state has taken the place of God. The state, the tribe, society becomes a surrogate God. It is the only reality the left knows. As a conservative, Scruton is a very honest one. He acknowledges that one not need be religious to be moral, that there are objective truths 
and that while he seems to have chosen a religious path to truth himself, he admits that such truths can be found by the non-religious. He's more, um, he is more honest in this than I think that many conservatives who believe that the non-religious, the atheists, if you will, are immoral. This disparaging of atheists come about, I believe, because nihilists are most often atheists. Uh, just like, um, you know, the communist world was not an officially atheistic world. Atheistic with re- with uh, relative relativity to the belief in a deity, not atheistic mm-hmm. with relativity to belief in mysticism. Yes, <laughs> right? yes, they were very mystical. Oh, they were totally mystical. Not only that, they were religious because the state became course, God. Especially the that Nazis. Was a religion. Holy cow. Oh, yes, yeah. They were superstitious to that degree. You know, there's a false conclusion drawn by many conservatives that to be an atheist is to be nihilist. It's it's not necessarily so. While there are nihilists who are atheists, there are atheists who are not nihilists. Atheist isn't a defining point of anything, no. really. No, it's a it's actually a sort of a non-term. Yeah, like you're saying that the de- denier, you yeah, know, the kettle is. It's again what you not are hot. not. It's what you are not, <laughs> yeah. not what you are. Okay, so let's listen to some more of Roger Scruton, fascinating fellow to listen to, sure as is. he spoke to the Common Sense Society in Budapest on January twenty fifth. 2012. Maybe an older view of, of, of thinking or philosophy or of approaching life uh, w- would have been an endeavor to discover truth or well, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, yeah. one contrast with this is the religious worldview, which says that there is a position outside the individual's interests right. from which he is judged. That is the position occupied by God, who, uh, um, as it were, provides that overview, systematic overview of all our desires and all our aims and is in a position to judge us. We can then, by, as it were, discovering what his position is, come to an objective view of our own situation. Right. Uh, and uh, obviously, the obvious thing to say about moral relativism is that it's what is left when the religious worldview collapses. And that's perhaps one reason why it is so prevalent now. Right. Do you have to have, a, though, a religious worldview? Would, have, um, would an Aristotle have viewed it that way? Uh, do, do you necessarily need to be religious to, to recognize that truth might exist and, and, and it would be worthwhile to discover what that is? No, you don't. Uh, and, of course, that has been one of the efforts of philosophy down the centuries. Aristotle is only one example. Kant is another. Uh, the effort of, to produce a fulcrum on which our worldview can can turn, which is not simply our individual desires. I think for a long time after the Enlightenment, Western intellectuals believed that they had discovered that in the the idea of morality put forward by Kant, or perhaps some version version that was downstream from that, like the utilitarianism of the uh, of John Stuart Mill and so on, which gave gave a, a secular grounding to a shared moral position, which would not be the position of any particular person, but the position of all of us. And from that, we could come to conclusions about what was right and wrong, which didn't privilege the individual and his desires. But of course, there's been an increasing, during the 20th century, an increasing despair that that project was possible. Uh, And um, this despair had many forms, but one of the most important from the point of view of rhetoric was the existentialist position of people like Sartre. 
he argued that there is no position uh, from which I can be judged except my own. Uh, so that the only thing that can authenticate my moral judgments is my choice that those are my judgments. Right. So the difference between a, a moral and an immoral person on Sartre's view is simply that the moral person is somebody who wills his own desires uh, as, as commitments, whereas the, the immoral person is someone who just has those desires. So on that view, you, the, 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 you know, the, the authentic existentialist rapist is the one who you should praise, not the person who simply is tempted by his sexual appetites. So this, this subjective understanding of truth where I can't necessarily judge uh, your value system or whatever else, we're told that this has led to an age of, of toleration. Uh, and, and yet, a, a lot of those folks who espouse, I think, a, uh, maybe a postmodern moral relativist view, uh, use the words ought and should and must um, mm. quite a bit. So how do we arrive at that, sort of a didactic uh, moral relativism? It's a very a good question that um, it is obviously a part of human nature to affirm ourselves through moral judgments. And when people t uh, adopt the view that all moral judgments are relative or subjective, um, they turn that into an objective morality too. Uh, th so it becomes a kind of sin to be other than a relativist. You know, some, uh, and you see this happening especially in things like the European Court of Human Rights, where it, when you, fi you find people with old-fashioned objective systems of values constantly being uh, called before the judges and reproached for the fact that they are discriminating against people who don't share their values. Right, so it becomes ever more difficult to retain those old-fashioned objective views of what morality is without being condemned on moral grounds. Uh, so that subjective, a kind of subjectivism becomes a, a moral norm. So it's not that people have really given up on the idea of objective morality, it's that they're making a, a certain kind of subjectivity into an objective morality. It's a kind of par paradox, uh, and you see this paradox already in Nietzsche uh, and people like that who, who um, Nietzsche affirmed this, some, something like a, a subjectivist view of morality, that, that what matters, he says, is, is to will your own desire as a law. You know, it's your own desire and the will to power that is expressed through it. That's the essence of the moral position. But of course, the, uh, Nietzsche very quickly turned that from a doctrine of liberation into a doctrine of condemnation. Condemnation of all the people who couldn't live in that way and needed the support of an objective framework. Right. Uh, and I think you're finding that happening now in the, the kind of moralism that surrounds the European enterprise. It, this becomes obscure because very often modern moralism clothes itself in the concept of a human right. The, the idea of, of universal human rights is an, a, a sort of political expression of the 18th century Enlightenment morality. It 
grows out of Locke and, and out of Kant. Uh, and it is what we have retained in the modern world of that noble effort to construct an objective morality without God. This morality had the form of a respect for uni universal human rights that we all possess by virtue of our human nature and which uh, we can affirm uh, against each other, we can lay claim to them uh, and expect others to acknowledge that claim. Yeah, so it gives a, a fulcrum outside the individual desire on which the issue can be turned. Some fascinating words there from British philosopher Roger Scruton. I have the feeling that we'll be hearing more from him on this show in the future. And what I find um, interesting, just reading up on the man, because I've just only been recently introduced to his ideas, is that... As he, have I. Yeah. yeah, he became a conservative back in 1968 when he was in France. And um, he saw some violence by the left. Of course, the right hardly ever mm -hmm. <laughs> commits violence. But um, he, he said, quote, I suddenly realized I'm on the other side. What I saw was an unruly mob of self-indulgent middle-class hooligans. When I asked my friends what they wanted, what were, uh, they were trying to achieve, all I got back was this ludicrous Marxist gobbledygook. I was disgusted by it and thought there must be a way back to the defense of Western civilization against these things. That's when I became a conservative. I knew I wanted to conserve things rather than put them down, unquote. Mm -hmm. So he chose a conservative path. You and I are choosing an objective path. But um, again, what we share in common is interesting and, and worth, worth noting, I think. If you'd like to hear more from that conversation uh, by Roger Scruton, uh, you can find it on YouTube. It was titled The Problem with Moral Relativism, a conversation with British philosopher Roger, Roger Scruton. And it was put on by Common Sense Society Budapest. I'd like to move on now to a piece of feedback from listener Liam. Uh, I can't read his entire letter. It goes on um, quite a bit about taxes, and he did some quite um, interesting thoughts on it. But um, I'll, I'll, I'll read this part here. He writes, Hello, I'm a longtime uh, objectivist, recent Freedom Party member, and very recent listener to your online podcasts. I've listened to a few of your thoughts on taxation, particularly episodes 354 and 161. I have some thoughts and suggestions that I believe have not been discussed yet. I will admit up front that I have, <clears throat> since my beginnings as a libertarian, always held the view that taxation is inconsistent with the values of a free society and must be ultimately abolished. What I am very fond of is your GST suggestion and agree 100% that income tax is the worst form of taxation. I do think there are better ideas that should be discussed, and taxing the value of land, I think, is preferable to taxing sales. Unlike a sales tax, a land value tax would put the burden of collection on the government, with landowners only getting a bill in the mail. Also, unlike most other forms of taxation, a land value tax is almost impossible to cheat, as it is impossible to hide land. What about property rights? Well, unlike our current property tax system, I would not suggest taking away people's property because they don't pay. Just treat tax evasion as a civil matter and have the defendant pay a fine or, if necessary, have some assets seized to pay the costs. Why land tax rather than sales? Because it's simpler and makes more economic sense, writes Liam. Why tax sales, which are necessary for economic growth when you can tax the economic rent from land? 
unquote. So that's from Liam. Mm, yeah, and I'd like to tackle some of the uh, suggestions here because I, I'm afraid I don't necessarily agree with Liam uh, on some of his points. I do certainly... I can uh, see what he's trying to get at mm-hmm. with making it simpler to not have to have, for, for example, merchants involved in the sales tax process. Yes, yes. And uh, that's an issue, but I, I'm not sure if it was in one of the two shows he cited where we did deal with why they would be the ideal intermediary because of the whole trade issue. Mm-hmm. But um, simpler? I don't know about that. Yeah. You know, there is still an obligation on the taxpayer to pay. And then you got courts and all that issue, you know. <laughs> well, first of all, thank you, Liam, for writing. Um, appreciate the feedback. You certainly have given the issue some thought. And like I said, I didn't get into the entirety of your letter. Um, Liam actually goes on to make suggestions that as an alternative to any taxation, the government should sell those assets and not... Um, the assets not germane to its proper functions and fund itself off the interest, which, by the way, I find not a bad idea. And I'd like to tackle that um, some perhaps sometime in the future. It's not a bad idea, much like he points out that it's not unlike a trust fund that a university might uh, live off of. Yeah. Put the government in a debit situation instead of a credit situation. Mm -hmm. Now, I think we're in agreement, of course, that a government relegated to its sole purpose of protecting the life, liberty and property of the citizens will not tax them. At all. Because taxing, by definition, means uh, violating that very duty that they are uh, there to protect. You know, uh, life, liberty, and property. But we are, unfortunately, so far from seeing a such a government, you know, the, the ideal government that we espouse, that we're left discussing how to get there from here. Again, we agree that the so first thing... In other words, thing, how do you pay for the protection of government? Yeah. Or from government, too. <laughs> well, well that's, an, that's another issue. <laughs> when, when, when I'm talking about getting there from uh, there from here, right? And, and like I say again, to reiterate, we agree with Liam that the first thing is to abolish the income tax. It's the most onerous of all taxes. But I still maintain that a sales tax is preferable to a land tax, and for several reasons. Here they are. A sales tax is impersonal and can be completely anonymous. The government does not need to know who the buyer is for the buyer to pay the tax. A land tax, on the other hand, is not anonymous, and the government would know who you are and how much uh, land you have and what you're paying at all times. You're on the hook. Leaving aside for the moment that registry of land, I believe, is a proper function of government. Um, In other words, they'd know who owns it anyway. But that aside... Now, even though a sales tax would see the rich paying more than the poor, since he'll be purchasing more expensive items, and, you know, that that's just the nature of the beast, a sales tax is more equitable. Many of us are not landowners, and if a land tax is the only means of collecting funds, then only those of us with land will pay the burden, um, you know, pay for the burden of, of funding a government, which benefits all of us, even those without land. So that just seems to, to fly in the face of some sort of equitability or uh, getting well, something if, for nothing. You know, look at the theory of it. What if there were only 10 landowners and 5 million people? Yeah. <laughs> 10 guys pay all the taxes? Yeah, well, to, yeah. to exaggerate it, the point, yeah. yeah. You know, the burden of collecting a sales tax would still reside with the merchant you know, as you alluded to before. But, you know, having been a merchant in the past and having remitted the GST, I found the process pretty simple, actually. And in truth, the government actually deducts a small amount of the remittance by way of compensating the merchant for his time, albeit not enough. Um, that may be, but, but nobody, that can change. But nobody forced you to be a merchant. 
Nobody forced you to get into the marketplace, which has to be protected by government. You That's wanna, right. You want to make sure that your transactions that you engage with with your customers, that you have a third party to go to if they don't want to pay, et cetera, yep. et cetera. Yep. This is why I think we originally arrived at that as, actually at, as being the simpler solution. Yeah, uh, if not, a just solution. And don't forget, that's how the Romans operated at the height of their empire. They never got above a 5% sales tax mm -hmm. anywhere. I forget what the amount that I said in those shows, what would be a proper oh, tax. I, but even with today's largesse mm -hmm. and, and, and inefficiencies, I think that it came out to a simple tax of like 5 6%, something like that. Eliminate every single other tax and you can fund a proper government with a, a, a very small sales tax. Now, a sales tax can be avoided if the buyer and the seller agree. You may have referred to this as cheating, Liam, but I, I see no harm in it as long as, as buyer and seller know that they have uh, no recourse to the courts in any dispute over the transaction if the sale, if the tax sales tax was not paid on it. And we, we, we do this all the time. It, it's called a black market, but I think the black market is the real market. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, it depends, too. It depends on the difference between personal transactions and commercial on a mm -hmm. wider scale where you're not dealing with personal issues. And that's an entirely different issue. It's almost like family versus the outside world, if you, yes. you know, in, in terms yeah. of dealing with people. Yeah. You know, the notion that refusal to pay a lands tax should be treated as a civil offense, as Liam suggests, I think is impractical, if not unrealistic. If you have no other assets, then, then a court could rightly deem your land to be confiscated to pay off the debt that you've incurred through taxation. There really is no way around the nature of indebtedness, whether it is to the government or to any other entity you are ob obligated to pay. If all you have is the land, then they'll, they'll take it to pay the debt. There's no, there's no doubt about it. I, I think treating it as a civil situation is, is just not let me, uh, realistic. Mm -hmm. It's just not going to happen. Also, if the government was unable to seize your land, then what's the incentive to pay, any, you know, to pay the government any tax at all? You know, they're not going to take my land, so, you know, to help them. There's also a problem with how the land is valued. We see that, uh, you know, we see it today in cases of expropriation. The term fair market value is absolutely meaningless. If your land is not on the market, there's no, there's no market for your property. There's no such thing as a fair market value. That's a value. good point, yeah. You know, especially if you don't want to sell it, you know, fair market. There's no market. One can only guess based on similar parcels of land sold nearby. It's an arbitrary assessment, so I don't think that taxing land in that respect is is as easy or as simple as as Liam suggested um, a sales tax of a simple percentage on all ta on all purchases is certainly the more simple um, and a sales tax um, I just think is, is is just preferable over to a land tax and it eliminates this arbitrary valuing of land and but I do thank you Liam for that um, suggestion I hope I've covered the points and um, thanks for writing and that's all we have time for this week so as Bob says, join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, and think right. We'll see you next week. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Quick, Jake, shoot him! We ain't gonna shoot nobody. He ain't nobody. Revenueers and buzzards don't count. Go on inside and cook up some vittles. Since when is a revenue or company? <laughs> Mr. Clampett, I'd like you to meet Mr. Lamp. I'm pleased to meet you, Mr. Clampett. How do you do, Mr. Landman? Uh, since you're a friend of Mr. Drysdale's here, I reckon you're welcome. But as you can see, uh, we don't cut the revenueers. I'm not a revenueer, Mr. Clampett. 
I guess back in the hills where you come from, I'd be a tax collector. Back in the hills where I come from, you'd be a lot younger. Oh? Was the climate that healthy? Oh, just you wouldn't have lived to get this old. 